I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so tonight we're going to look at Joseph as a type of Christ, the story of the life of Joseph as it relates to the life of Jesus. And my contention is that Joseph is clearly, and I think fairly inarguably, a type of Christ. Um, He's sort of identified in the New Testament as such. I'll get to that at the end. But... um, let me give let me give you some ground rules as we're heading into this this study. Um, it's difficult to do a study of the typology of Joseph. You could easily do like a three minute summary, but what I like to do is actually go through the whole story tonight. But it's a lot of chapters. So Joseph is in Genesis thirty seven. His story begins. Then in thirty eight we have a, a kind of a break off story about Judah and Tamar, and then we have thirty nine through fifty chapters thirty nine through fifty continuing the story of Joseph. It's a lot of material. Here's my notes. There's a lot more pages than usual, but a lot of it is actually just reading the text of Scripture so we can get the story, so we can then find the types. Um, But our focus isn't going to be everything about Joseph and answering all the questions. Uh, That would take forever. It's going to be just the typology. Now, I'll I'll just admit up front, some of the types that I'm going to, or the connections between Joseph and Jesus I'll give you, some are very clear and very like, oh yeah, that's clear. Other, Other ones are much weaker, but I'm going to share them all with you for you to think about and consider and and. Realize that it's not like you got to take them all or leave them all. You should probably consider them individually. Would be maybe a good way to look at it. Um, so, finally, um, I'm going to mention briefly about Abraham offering Isaac, but I'm not going to be covering that type in this series of Jesus in the Old Testament because I covered it in detail in the in the uh, Evidence for the Bible series. So I'll put a link in this video description. If you guys go to this video, look at the description. If you want to find how Abraham offering Isaac is a type of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, probably one of my favorites, but that'll be something I've already covered. So let's get started here. Genesis 37. Joseph is actually not considered one of the patriarchs. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the patriarchs of Israel. And then we have Joseph. He is Jacob's, uh, not his last son, but one of his, one of the only sons of Rachel. So it's kind of his special son, one of the special sons of Jacob. He's not considered a patriarch. Uh, it's debated as to why he's not considered one by, by Jews. I'm, I'm thinking the most reasonable thing is all of Israel doesn't connect to Joseph, right? They all connect to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't all connect to Joseph. Rather, just the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh connect to Joseph, which would mean he couldn't be the patriarch for all of them. That just seems to make sense to me. But here we are, Genesis 37, verse 2. It says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So he's, he's in a very weird family, right? Joseph has two wives, and his wives had given him various concubines or second-tier wives to have children with because they were competing with each other for more kids. It's not endorsed. It's not something the scripture is like, look, use this as your model for life. It's rather, this is what they did. These are real people with their real stories. And um, he's a shepherd. Now, I'll give you already, we have the first connection with Jesus, though. Jesus was the good shepherd. And Joseph is a shepherd, like his brothers as well. And he brings a bad report he brings a bad report. So this is where John 10, 11, by the way. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He connects himself to the concept of being a shepherd, being the ultimate good shepherd. Uh, Psalm 23, you realize, is 
something about Jesus in that psalm, the, the shepherd's psalm. Um, then he brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. And, of course, he was that brother, right, <laughs> who went and told dad what the other guys were doing. You have to understand, when they take their sheep out, they go out into the field, and they're not around dad for a while. And I don't know maybe, you know, maybe it's just me, but I think young guys with no adult authorities around who are all brothers off in a field all alone can sometimes get into trouble. And so he brings a bad report of them. And this will be one of several reasons why they don't like Joseph. Ultimately, they hate him. This is one of the reasons he brings a bad report of them to the father. Well, in John 7, 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so we see a connection between the bad report causing them to reject him. Well, Jesus comes and brings a bad report and they ultimately reject him. The, good, the gospel is the good news of forgiveness of sins, but it's forgiveness of what? Sins, right? <laughs> These are, this isn't just God just came to, to, to make you feel loved. No, the primary issue is sin. This make you feel loved thing is a beautiful additional thing, you know, but that's not the main thing. Um, so they don't like that. In Genesis 37.3, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. There's, this is, Joseph's whole story, by the way, is ripe for learning lessons on how to not have your family fall apart. This is a beautiful story for that, to learn lessons. Uh, But I'm not going to focus on that, right? So he, he loves him more than his other sons because he's the son of not only Jacob's old age, but he's the son of Rachel, his preferred wife. Rachel did not have a son for years and years and years and years. Finally, unexpectedly, she has Joseph. And so, strong connection right there between him and his dad. Rachel, the favorite wife, her son. In in Genesis 33, verses 1 and 2, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. This is, by the way, the, the let me back up. This is the story where uh, Jacob, after fleeing, comes back to see his brother, and he, he feels his brother's going to kill him. So he sends people based on how important they are. He sends them ahead. And look at, look at the order in which he sends them. You know, where in, in the Laban, the Laban caravan, as they go out, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Do you think his brothers forgot that? Remember that time when dad thought we were all going to die and how he put Rachel and Joseph last? But he put us first. Like, they're, of course, not going to forget this. So they kind of despise him for that. Plus, he has this coat of many colors. And so there's a, there's a problem here in the family. But how is it a type of Christ? Well, excuse me, Joseph is the one who is greatly loved by his father. How is this a type of Christ? Colossians says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Matthew 3.17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so there's this incredible love, this pointed out love between uh, Joseph and Jacob. And there is this incredible love between the father and the son. And also this connects to Genesis 22. As I mentioned, I'd mentioned this, right? Isaac and Abraham. When Abraham offered Isaac, God tells him, Abraham, in Genesis 22, two, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, he actually had more than one son, but he calls him his only son, I think, to draw that it's a bigger type of Christ. Whom you love, whom you love, and that's the first time the word love comes up in the Bible. 
Genesis 22, 2. Take your son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And so there's this connection, the father and the son, the father and the son, and the deep love that's there. So he was the unexpected son of Rachel. It was a son of his old age, meaning there was this really long delay before this particular son was born. An unexpected delayed birth. That's what happened with Abraham and Isaac as well, isn't it? This long, a promise, but a long, long delay till finally he's born and boom, there he is. He comes out and Jesus, in a sense, is connected to this too. First Peter 1.20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. There's this like sort of delay, this sense of how long, how long, O oh Lord? And then he shows up and it was kind of a miraculous birth. She was, she was unable to bear children. And then she was at a certain age where she wasn't even expected to bear children anymore. Just like who? Sarah, Abraham's wife. So we have this miraculous-ish birth that happens. And that relates to Jesus as well because he was born of a virgin. There was an unexpected, delayed, miraculous birth. So we're only like four verses in, but there's already some good connections to, to Jesus. Then, of course, there's the robe of many colors. And some people think this is connected to Jesus's tunic. In the scripture, we read that Jesus, he had this tunic that was, that was woven out of one piece of cloth. And that was, however, the standard way of, wo- of weaving those types of tunics. It, wasn't, it was normal to have them woven of one piece of cloth uh, as opposed to sewn together. So I don't know that the robe of many colors connects to Jesus's tunic in the sense that the robe is glorious and Jesus's tunic is glorious. It's not, Jesus's tunic wasn't glorious, right? He, he was not well off. He didn't have a lot of financial benefits of any kind while he walked the earth. But there is a sense, we'll get to this later, where Joseph's tunic is repeatedly taken from him. And of course, Jesus was taken from him as a way of stripping him of whatever he did have. He had given it up. So they hated him and they hated him, it says, ultimately without a cause. Now you might say, well, they they had a cause, right? Dad likes Joseph more than us, so so we hate him. He brought a bad report of us, so we hate him. But those aren't problems with Joseph, are they? They're hating Joseph for things Joseph didn't do wrong. And that's what we did with Jesus. In John 15, 25, it says, But the word that is written in their own law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So John 15, 25, another connection between Joseph and Jesus. All right, let's keep reading. Genesis 37, verse 5. We've only got 25 chapters chapters to go. Um, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? It seems to them the interpretation of this dream is obvious. You think you're going to reign over us? We're going to bow to you. Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. He's, he's, he's bothered by the dream, right? His dad, but he goes, I'm going to remember this. This is, it's weird. It bothers me, but I'm going to keep this in mind. 
So they hate him, hated him even more. And the reason is because of his claims about the future. He's, he's going to be ruling and they're going to bow before him. Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, it is, it is God who rides upon the clouds. And Jesus is claiming he's going to be riding upon the clouds. And so um, they, of course are going to try to kill him for this. Jesus just straight up says, look, I'm, I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be the boss. And they respond by uh, hating him more. In fact, this is ultimately connected to why they deliver him. In verse 11 of Genesis 35, it says his brothers were jealous of him. They had jealousy of him, which is interesting because you're not really jealous unless you think someone actually has something you don't have. Right? So they, they knew something was special about Joseph in this regard. So they're jealous of him. Mark 15.10, it says, For he perceived that it was out of envy or jealousy that the chief priests had delivered him up. This is Pilate who realizes that the chief priests are jealous of Jesus. Why? Because he's the one who's going to be ruling over them. But here's where we get a little kink, our first little kink in the typology of Joseph. He says that his father and mother are going to bow down to him too. And are we going to relate this to Jesus and the father? Like the God, the father is going to bow down to Jesus. Obviously that is not the case. That is not a biblical understanding of the economic Trinity or how it sounds weird. There aren't two different kinds of, it's just a way of talking about the Trinity in the sense of uh, the, the different roles of the father, son, and Holy spirit. And so, no, I, I, I think that it's not about God, the father bowing. I think what it's about is Jacob bowing to Jesus ultimately. I think the idea is if Joseph is a picture of Christ and Jacob bows to Joseph, we should say that, um, that ultimately Jacob, even though he's this great patriarch of Israel, he will bow to this ultimate Jesus. That's the idea. Why do I say this? Well, think about when we were in Melchizedek. We studied Melchizedek, right? And how Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and the idea was, and then Melchizedek blesses Abraham and he labors in Hebrews to tell us Melchizedek is better than Abraham to show us that Jesus is greater than even Abraham. So we have Jacob bowing to Joseph to show us that Jesus is in fact greater than even Jacob. Let me support this more. John 4 verse 12 says, are you greater than our father Jacob? They ask Jesus. Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, yeah, I'm greater than Jacob. (laughs) I will give you eternal life. He gave you a well. I'm going to give you eternal life. Then again, in John 8, 51, Jesus talks about this relating to Abraham. He's greater than Abraham. In John 8, 51, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And then you, get, you go down to John eight fifty eight, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Is he greater than Abraham? By far. That's the claim. So greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham. That's the connection I see there with the bowing of the father. 
Okay, so we kind of shift scenes there. That sort of just sort of set everything up. That's Joseph's life set up, right? He's, he's one brother among many. He's the favorite brother. He's got the robe of many colors. He brings a bad report. He has these dreams. They all kind of hate him and jealous. And then verse 12 of Genesis 37. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, you, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now this is where I, I think there's something interesting here. He leaves his father's side on a mission from the father to see how the brothers are doing with the flock. I see a picture in that, personally. I think it's there. John sixteen twenty eight, Jesus said, I came from the father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus came on a mission from the Father. Later on, in the text of Scripture, the flock, the term flock, often represents, do you guys know who? Israel. It represents Israel. And the shepherds and the leaders of the flock, they represent the leaders of Israel. So we get this like in Ezekiel 34 two. Here's an example. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have, um, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And so they're being rebuked. But they're, the leaders, spiritual leaders, are considered shepherds. And the flock are the people of Israel. Jesus used this imagery too. First off, he calls himself, we know, the good shepherd, right? But in John 10, 16, he opens it up. He says, yeah, Israel's the flock, but guess what? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Talking about the Jews and Gentiles being brought together in Christ. So, what am I saying? I'm saying that there is this concept where we have the father sending the son to see how, how the shepherds are doing with the flock. And this is really part of what Jesus did as he comes and he evaluates and he looks at the temple and he goes, well, you've made my father's house a, a house of merchandise and he overturns the tables and he sees the Pharisees and he says, woe to you. And he's, he's evaluating the shepherds and he's looking, at, looking to the flock and then he's calling them to himself. All right, let's keep reading Genesis 37 verse 18. They saw him from afar. Joseph's on his way. Um, he finds out they're really in Dothan, not Shechem, and he heads over to Dothan. And they, they see him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Remember that time he brought a bad report? I don't know what they were doing out there, but maybe part of that was the bad report. Maybe it's the robe. Maybe it's the love. Maybe it's the dreams. But ultimately, verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animals devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. Now, Reuben's the oldest son, and maybe perhaps feeling more responsible um, and being older. He tries to rescue them, and he says, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So he had a rescue plan going on. It didn't work. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. This to me is just a picture of him losing his glory. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Technically, that's a, it's a cistern. So a cistern is, is in solid rock. They would just dig a well. And because it's solid rock, they could add water to it anytime. It'll be a water storage system for them. 
but it's not a well where there's water coming up naturally. So it's empty. It's, it's, it's a dry cistern. So they throw him into that pit. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, oh, I'm sorry, 24. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, which is just weird, right? They're, Let's just have a meal. Ha, ha, ha. They're kind of laughing at him in the pit. <clears throat> and looked up, looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, now Judah's speaking up, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, I have an idea. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy's gone, and I, where shall I go? Being the more responsible. I'm I'm the the adultish guy, right? I'm I'm the firstborn and I'm responsible. Then they took Joseph's robe, and here's how they'll cover up their crime. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. Then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so where's the typology in this, in what we just read? Um, first off, they conspire against him. We read this in verse 18. They literally, quote, conspired against him. There was a conspiracy, a plot to, to, to come against him. And this was actually the reality for Jesus. Uh, Mark fifteen eleven, it says, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Remember, Pilate's like, which one do you want? And the, the chief priests, they conspire, they work with the crowd to get the crowd to call out for Barabbas instead of for Jesus. There's literally a conspiracy against him. They conspire with Judas. They conspire with Herod. They conspire between Herod and Pilate. There's, there's a, quite a big conspiracy. Even the existence of like trials in the middle of the night was against Jewish customs. You're not allowed to have a trial at this time of night. This is just kind of under darkness and it's not just. Um, so... So yeah, they conspired against him. There was a plot. And um, the imagery of death is really strong with what happens to Joseph, right? Do they kill him? No. But they do, t- they do a couple things. First off, they throw him into a pit. And the pit is symbolic. Just do a search of the word pit in the text of scripture. Pit, the pit is symbolic of death. God, rescue me from the pit Psalm says, right? The pit is symbolic of death. So they throw him into a pit. Then they take his robe and they kill an animal instead of him, which reminds me of, I don't know, Isaac, Abraham and Isaac again. And so they kill this animal. They put the blood of the animal on the robe. They show it to the father. And as far as the father's concerned, Joseph is dead. So to the dad, he's dead. And to all the world, he's dead, except for the small group of guys that knows the truth. The spices that the caravan was carrying are embalming spices. 
taking them down to Egypt. Embalming is very popular down in Egypt at the time, anyways. And so they're carrying these spices down there. One of them is myrrh, which was given to Jesus at his birth and then used again on Jesus at his death, myrrh. So the imagery of death is really, really strong going on here. And so without him actually dying, there's a death motif going on in his story. Then in verse 26, Judah steps in and his idea is let's sell him for profit. Now you may or may not know this, but there was a guy who decided to sell Jesus for profit and his name is Judas. Well, Judas is just the anglicized name of Judah. It's the exact same name. So here we have Judah selling Joseph. Here we have Judah selling Jesus. And uh, one for 20 pieces, one for 30 pieces. I think it's just adjusted for inflation. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But the actual 30 pieces of silver, that's outlined in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, prophetically spoken of there. Now, you might say at this point, well, Mike, you're being anti-Semitic. Look, everybody in the story is Jewish. The victims and the bad, the bad guys and the good guys, they're all Jewish here. This isn't anti-Semitic. It's just the story of what really actually happened. Um, Reuben tries to save him. Ultimately, this Jewish guy raises up, saves Gentiles and Jews. Sound familiar? And then, and then brings them all together and restores them in the end. So um, if anybody's feeling that this, this whole thing could be, you have like that radar that says, is this anti-Semitic? Like, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're just confused. Not at all. Um, so they strip his robe off him and they throw him into a pit and he becomes a slave. And this, I think, is in Philippians chapter 2. Talking about Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 5. Having, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, th- who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have the lowering of Joseph in the same sense, the lowering of Jesus, stripping of his robe, like, take, like Jesus taking aside, off his glory to come in the form of a servant. Joseph will now be in the form of a servant because he's been sold as a slave. Okay, I'm going to move a little bit faster now because... Um, not every chapter of the story is going to be equally important for us, but we had to like labor a little, little slower. That might have felt fast, but you just wait. Hang on. <laughs> we're going to move quicker now. Uh, but we're going to jump to chapter 39 because Genesis 38, again, that is all about Judah and Tamar. It's not about Joseph at all. So in Genesis 39, verses 1 through 6, Joseph is in the house of Potiphar, and he in Potiphar's house is rising up as like the chief of the servants. He's a slave, right? He's been sold as a slave, but he rises up. God is with him. God blesses him. In verses five and six, um, it says, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And um, that becomes important because of what happens next with Potiphar's wife. Um, But everything's under his charge. Remember this concept. Everything is under his charge. Everything's under his charge. Just remember this for the future. Then in verses 7 through 12, we have a situation where Potiphar's wife, and most of us know the story, right? She's like, hey, Joseph, sleep with me. And he's like, hey, no, I will not sin against God and against Potiphar. I'm not going to do this. This is wrong. And so he refuses. And then she frames him. She frames him 
right? So in verse 10 of Genesis 39, it says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Um, Many people don't realize this. We think of the moment where she grabs his coat and he runs out the room and she won't let go of his coat. And he's like, I'm out of here, you know, so he just takes off. Um, But we don't realize she did this day after day. That repeatedly, day after day, she was constantly tempting him and he was constantly refusing and would not allow it to happen until she tried to take him by force. Tried to just force herself upon him somehow. I think that this relates to Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he was tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights. Scripture tells us in Hebrews that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he is without sin. And did you know this about Joseph? He is one of the only characters who's a main character, many chapters devoted to him, who doesn't have some major moral failing that we can see. He's the, one of the only guys. It's like him and Daniel, and that's just about it. <laughs> you know, there's not much, right? Because you think of David. Okay, yep, immediately comes to mind. Think of Saul. No, okay, all right, well, you know, Barak, no, he had some problems too. You know, I, I, I could think of, you know, Samson. He was, oh no, that was really bad. So really, he's, he's one of the rare ones. And I think that the idea is Jesus tempted but resisted temptation. So Jesus, he, um, or Joseph, he goes through something that's sort of picturing that. Not saying Joseph was sinless. We don't think that for a second. Um, then in verses 13 through 18, Joseph gets framed all over again. Potiphar's wife is upset. She's angry because he won't do what she wants. Maybe she's feeling embarrassed, so she lashes out, and she frames him for trying to sleep with her. So he then goes into prison. He ends up getting the punishment for what she did. He takes the punishment for what she did. Does that sound familiar? That's, yeah, me too. All right, Genesis 39 verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge, he ends up being in charge again, of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So he's in charge of everything. Two times now we get this, right? It'll happen a third time in a moment. But two times now, Joseph, he goes and he's put in charge of everything. He goes and he's put in charge of everything. Well, Jesus, he was in charge. And John, think about this real specifically though. John 5, 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. People don't often think of Jesus as judge of the world, unless... You actually think of Jesus. <laughs> you realize pretty quickly he is. But all judgment was given to the Son. He's given charge of all. He's the judge of the living and the dead, Scripture says. They will, every knee will bow to him. So he's put in charge, even after all of the um, uh, shame that he experienced. Then in prison, some interesting things happen. He meets a couple of the uh, Egyptians... The, the, the Egyptian pharaohs, number two type guys, or the people, I should say, in his court, you know, his important guys, the cupbearer and the baker. And these guys were, were not only, it wasn't just a baker, just a cupbearer. These were political positions as well as having sort of practical tasks that they would do. So Genesis 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So they are then put into jail, and they're there with Joseph. Now he's in charge of the jail, but he's still a prisoner. 
but he's kind of like the chief prisoner. And so um, they have dreams and it, they have these weird dreams and then they tell Joseph about their dreams. Now here's where dreams come in again into the story of Joseph, right? He told his brothers his dream. Now someone else is telling him their dreams. Let's look in verse nine at the dreams these two men have and how Joseph gets the interpretation for them. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph, he's going to interpret it, said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Then he gives him a request. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. <laughs> he doesn't want to be in the jail anymore. He knows he doesn't belong there. So um, he continues. For I, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And he calls this prison the pit. There's that pit term coming up again. And so uh, the prison and the pit connection between death and all that that's there. Jesus, in a sense, went to the pit to deliver people from it. So verse 16, I think this is so funny. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph. Now get this. He's like, ooh, that was a good interpretation. He's going to be restored to Pharaoh. Hey, Joseph, here's my dream. And he says, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, the highest one, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. Three baskets are for three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Just telling it like it is, right? (laughs) He's just like, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's not good news. And probably, I'm just going to guess that the guy deserved it, but I don't know. But that was the interpretation. So he's proven himself to be like, I can really interpret these dreams. He gives all credit to God. He's like, God gets the credit. And then the one of them is, is raised up in a good way, and one is lifted up in a bad way. <laughs> and, and interestingly, there he is on, in his sentence, sharing his sentence with two men, one who was rescued and one who was condemned. And Jesus had two men, one on each side. One, one ended up being with him in paradise, and the other one ended up being condemned. Now, two years goes by. Two years goes by, and we get to Genesis 41. And Pharaoh now has dreams. So we see dreams kind of going throughout the story of Joseph. Pharaoh has two dreams, and I'll just summarize his dreams, right? His dreams go like this. He dreams, and he sees in the Nile River, and seven fat, healthy cows come out of the Nile River. Beefy, healthy cows. And then seven emaciated cows come out and they eat the fat cows. And after they eat the fat cows, they're still emaciated. How is that possible? It's a dream, right? And they eat, so then it gets stranger. Then he he dreams about seven healthy heads of grain. There's a stalk of grain that has seven healthy heads of grain on it. And they're nice and healthy and strong and good. And then another stalk rises up and it has seven blighted, like just emaciated, nasty looking grains on it. And they eat the healthy ones, and then they're just as blighted and emaciated. How is that possible? It's a dream, right? Like, you've had dreams, right? <laughs> like, yes, completely impossible things happen. The point is, it's meant to teach him something. Now, Pharaoh gathers in verse 8 of Genesis 41, he gathers the people, everybody he can. 
give me the interpretation of this dream. And they all, they're all like, we don't know what, we don't know what it means. We don't know what it means. Then the cupbearer suddenly remembers Joseph. Hey, that's right. There was that guy that knew my dream and he knew the baker's dream. And so in verse 29, we get where Joseph comes up and he's brought before Pharaoh and he's going to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. And this is kind of where his life changes. Everything changes now. There will come seven years, verse 29, of great plenty through all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The famine will consume the land. So he interprets the dream. The cows and the grains represented years. Healthy years and famine years. And the famine years will be even worse than the healthy years. Bad stuff is coming, Pharaoh. Bad things are coming. Now, there may be typology in here. I, I don't see it personally, not clearly enough to share it with you. If there's typology in the number seven or in the tribulation or something like that, I don't personally see it, so I'm not going to go there. Um, but I will say this. The way that Joseph talks and he says, Pharaoh, I'll, I'll, I can't do anything, but God will interpret the dream for you. He gives God over and over again full credit for how to interpret these dreams. And Jesus does something similar in John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So we see this connection in that sense that's there. Then there's a solution offered and Joseph's like, hey, you, what you need to do is, because he not only interprets the dream, he gives advice. He goes, Pharaoh, you need to appoint somebody so that during these seven healthy years, you guys gather everything you can and you save every bit of grain and every prosperous, prosperous thing you can. Just save it, save it, save it because the famine is coming. And so Pharaoh says, all right, well, you're hired, <laughs> basically. And so in verse 39 of Genesis 41, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Look, Joseph, you know stuff. You've got wisdom, you've got discernment. I want you. And now in Matthew 13, 54, it says, and Jesus coming to his hometown, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? There's a, another connection with Jesus where he comes to Nazareth, his own hometown, and he's sharing things. And they're like, how did he, where did he, how did he notice, how does he know? There's just this sense of supernatural wisdom and knowledge in both Joseph and in uh, Jesus. Then in verse 40, Pharaoh goes on and he says to him, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. This is like an authority-bearing ring. Puts it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Now, before this, he had constantly been losing his clothes, right? Like in a, in a negative sense, like he's losing his glory. He, he, he's got his glory with Joseph, with Joseph and Jacob, his dad. He, he gets that stripped from him, right? Then he's a slave, but he's the chief slave. But then even that is taken from him. And now he's in prison. And then now he's raised up, given the signet ring of Pharaoh and given this fine linen to show you his, his quality, you know, and his rank. Um, and he puts a gold chain about his neck, verse 43. And he made him ride in his second chariot, meaning Pharaoh first and then him second. And they called out before him, bow the knee. So when they would travel through Egypt, you're, you have to bow down as Joseph just walks by or chariots by. Is there a term? Is that a better term for chariot? Is he chariots across the, I don't know. Can I use that as a verb? 
Um, I think I can. So thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonoth paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Pot- Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So this is like a, a real payoff moment for Joseph, right? He's been raised up in rank, and he's now at the right hand of Pharaoh, and he exercises Pharaoh's authority as though it was his own. Let me read to you again Philippians 2. Remember how he came, became a servant, the scripture says? So starting in verse 6 of Philippians 2, it says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The down-up theme in Scripture is really consistent with Jesus. The book of Hebrews follows this down-up theme a lot, and um, it's neat to have it in your mind as you're studying that book. But we see it here with Joseph. He goes down, 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 and then boom, he's up as high as he could possibly be. Now, there's an interesting side thing here, which is his name, his new name. He's given a new name. Some people connect this to Jesus. He has a new name written on him in the book of Revelation. Um, But this Zaphnath Panea, or however you want to pronounce it, um, there are a list of possible meanings. And I'll give you one of my pet peeves right now. One of my pet peeves is when I read commentaries and they go, well, clearly, when things are not clear. Or obviously, when things are not obvious. Um, So... I'm going to give it to you as it really is, right? This names are often hard to figure out what they mean. Because when you look at ancient texts, words are used in context. You can figure out the meaning by seeing the words used next to that word. I went running and had a patoodly doodly doo time. And you could you could you know read the whole paragraph to figure out what patoodly doodly doo means, and you could probably guess your way around it, but names don't do that, do they? Names just sit in the middle of a sentence with nothing connecting them. So I went with Mike to the park. Like nothing, you know Mike's a person, but you don't know what Mike means. So names are sometimes hard to nail down the meaning of. So there's several different possibilities. I'm going to read them to you of what his name could mean. Um, and I've got these from different resources and different, um, not only Bible study materials, but dictionaries and stuff like that. So here's one. Zaphnath Panea could mean the salvation of the world. That's from the pulpit commentary um, in Genesis. It could mean the rescuer of the world. That's from Gesenius. It could mean the prince of the life of the world. That's from Bruch. It could mean the food of life or the food of the living. That's from Canon Cook in the speaker's commentary. It could also mean, says the God, he will live. Or, God speaks and he lives. Or, the Jewish Targums suggest that it means revealer of secrets. What shocked me as I studied all these names is any of them can be applied to Jesus. <laughs> That's what surprised me. And I thought, hey, just, I'll just share it with you guys. Interesting. I'll read them again. The salvation of the world, the rescuer of the world, the prince of the life of the world, the food of life, the food of the living, says the God, he will live, or God speaks and he lives, and revealer of secrets. Um, these are the different uh, potential meanings of that name, which I, I gave me a little goosebumps. I thought that was pretty cool. All right, so... We move forward. Um, 
in, uh, in chapter 42. In chapter 42, his brothers go back. And now he's been in Egypt for a while, right? All of the years of plenty have passed by. And now they're into the famine. And his brothers are out of food. And they need food. So where do they go? Well, Joseph's been stockpiling all the food for years now. And he's in charge of distributing it. So they're going to end up going to him. So Genesis 42, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was, um, verse 6, excuse me. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, Joseph, uh, I, I don't think I even put this in the text, in, in my notes, but Joseph was about 30 at the time he raised, he was risen up, and now he's doing his like ultimate ministry, saving the people of Egypt and the people in the surrounding lands. He was about 30 when he started that. And it was just the age Jesus was when he started his ministry, which is interesting as well. But he was 17 when they betrayed him. And he probably had like a scraggly little peach fuzz 17-year-old beard and skinny little 17-year-old guy and everything. But what happens is now he's Egyptian as far as anyone's concerned. He speaks their language. He's ruling in front of them and he looks like them so they don't recognize their brother. So, verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. You wonder how long it had been since he had, he'd thought about those dreams? And what did he just see that, not only, he didn't just see his brothers, he saw his brothers come and bow to him. And he said to them, now this is where it gets a little weird. Not weird like wrong, just odd. But I'm going to try to answer why he does this. He says, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. I think here Joseph is digging for information. Later they'll say, he asked us lots of questions. They tell, they tell their dad this. Um, when police are interrogating people, this is what they do. They just accuse you of things and then watch, and watch how you respond. Right? So one time I got pulled over by the cops. and uh, No, it wasn't pulled over. It was at, at a, a DUI stop. Just a stand up where they stopped everybody. <laughs> Don't be thinking weird things. <laughs> So I'm stopped there, and I have, aller- I have allergies. I have, I've always had allergies, right? So my eyes are like always bloodshot. That's just the way it is. The cop puts his flashlight in my, my, uh, my car, and he's looking at me, and he goes, he goes, how much pot did you smoke tonight? And I just started laughing because I know I'm innocent, so I have nothing to hide. I, was, I just started laughing. I was like, no, man, I just came from a night of worship over at Biola. It was great. Like, I don't, and he's like, all right, you can go. <laughs> And he could tell because of my response. He's like, ah, this is a waste of time. So he just sent me on my way. So what they do is they just, so he's like, you're spies. He's just digging information. Joseph doesn't know anything about his dad. He doesn't know what's going on with Benjamin, his younger brother, who is of the same mother, who has been with these guys this whole time, his brothers. So he's, he's got questions. I think he's just digging for information. So um, they bow to him. That's interesting. What's interesting to me, though, is the order of the bowing. Joseph gets raised up to Pharaoh's right hand. He travels through Egypt and they yell, bow. The Gentiles bowed to him before the Jews did. I think the order of that is significant. He rules and reigns in the eyes of the Gentiles before he's recognized by his own people. I think that's very significant. In Genesis 42 verse 18, we keep reading here. 
On the third day, Joseph said to them, because he, he puts them in like a holding cell for a while, for three days, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of, uh, of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now, here's the thing. This whole, this whole thing that Joseph does next is really, I just go, why did he do it, right? He sees his brothers, but not Benjamin. Benjamin's not with them, right? Maybe their dad didn't, he just, Benjamin's like the last one of Rachel, and I already lost his older brother, Joseph. I'm just going to keep him. I think Joseph is now embarking on a rescue mission to get Benjamin away from his brothers, to bring him to, to himself, make him part of the royalty of Pharaoh, and, to, and treat him well, and he's just going to not worry about the rest of his brothers, because what they did to him. I think that's what he's doing, and what happens changes his mind. That's what it looks like to me. I could be wrong, but that's what it seems to me. He wants to see if he's alive, and I think he wants to rescue him from them, because what did they do to him? And he knows possibly, what if Benjamin's under the same amount of risk that I was under? So in Genesis 42, 21, it says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They're having this conversation, by the way. The context is in front of Joseph, because they don't think he knows Hebrew. They don't think he knows their language. He's using an interpreter. So he, so they just start talking. You ever have someone who doesn't know you're bilingual and they just start talking in front of you? And you're like, <laughs> That's, Allison does that sometimes with people. She's like, I'll tell you what they said later. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, that's what happens. So he sees this. Now this is like, they have a sense of guilt. They're like, oh gosh, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to have problems. And this is why. And so um, they did not know, verse 23, that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. This begins the test. Simeon gets taken, and he's held, and the rest of the brothers go back. In Genesis 42, verse 25, it says, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with, with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. They were supposed to use that to buy the grain, right? And he said to his brothers, uh, My money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? They're like, we're, we look like thieves. We went and we got the grain and we stole our money back. He's got our brother over there. We're supposed to come back with our other brother. And so they're scared. They're worried that they might be in trouble. Now, he doesn't mean this to cause them this fear, I don't think. What we really see here is Joseph is just providing for his family, even though they're not asking for it, even though they're not aware of it. And God does this for Israel a lot. <laughs> so it's free provision Interestingly enough, they tried to pay for the bread that Joseph was going to give them, and he wouldn't let them. He goes, no, no, you have to take it for free. Sound familiar? This is the work of God. Believe in the one whom he has sent. I am the bread of life. Joseph's providing bread to keep them alive, and he won't let them pay. I think that that sounds familiar. So Jacob, when they get back and they tell dad all this stuff, Jacob's like, nope, nope. Benjamin is not going back over there. You guys... No, no, I already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose him. I would rather die. 
And so much time goes by because they ref- he refuses to let them take Benjamin back over there to Egypt. And then Judah steps in. They're running out of food again, and Judah steps in in Genesis 43, verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father. Now keep in mind, who was the guy who said, let's sell him into slavery? Judah. Judah says, send the boy, Benjamin, with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah says, I will take full responsibility for his life. That's interesting. So then they travel back to Egypt. In verse 16, it says, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, because they travel, they see Joseph, he sees Benjamin and he recognizes him. He said, now it's it's been like 13, over 13 years since he saw Benjamin last. Because he was 17 when he was sold into slavery, 30 when he started, and then it's been however much time after that. He said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So he's going to have a meal. And so then they, they have this, this, this sit down meal thing. They explain to Joseph, hey, we found our money back in our sacks. And he's like, oh, no, no, your God was just blessing you. Don't worry about it kind of thing. And, um, and then they continue. He actually is going to seat them in order of their age at the meal. Like, so the Reuben's first. And he puts them all in order of their age. Part of this, I think, okay, part, he, well, he just knows their age. Maybe he's messing with them. But part of it is, he's like, I just know stuff. This is, this is what he does to them. He's I just know things. Don't try and hide from me. Don't try and lie to me. I just know things. And that's kind of the impression he's going to give later. You'll, you'll see. Um, so, uh, we're going to pick up in verse, um, 26, Genesis 43, 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house, um, they brought into the house to him the present that he had, that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. They are just utterly bowing and submitting and yielding to his authority. And this is ultimately the fulfillment of that dream. Um, in, in, their, in the first coming of Joseph, he is rejected by his brothers. In the second time they meet, he is received and they bow before him. In Jesus' first coming, he was rejected by the Jewish people. But there is a revival coming, I believe. And, and Romans 11 talks about it, when they will re, re, be very much receiving him. So he sees Benjamin and he weeps. He goes and washes his face and then he comes back. Um, so I think maybe he was wearing some of that Egyptian makeup as a way to wash his face after crying. Because like, guys don't usually have to wash their faces after crying. We're just like, there's a bug in my eye, you know. Um, <laughs> So then they have the meal, he seats him in order of age, and he gives Benjamin five times the portion that he gives any of the other guys. So that's my kind of meal right there. Then Joseph gets into this plot, which I think is a rescue mission. I'm going to get Benjamin away from my brothers so that I can take care of him. So Genesis 44.1, Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill them in sacks with food, as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. So he hides one of his own precious things, silver item, inside Benjamin's sack. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city 
Now Joseph said to his steward, after they just barely got a little little distance away, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is, is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? I'll come back to the divination con- statement in a minute. Um, you have repaid evil for, or you have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Because they know they haven't done this. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. We'll be your slaves. He said, let it be as you say. Trap set. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Why? Because he doesn't want to kill anybody. He wants to get somebody. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned back to the city, right? Um, put their sacks back on and go, go over there. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, He was still there. They fell before him to the ground again. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not, uh, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, is Joseph literally practicing divination? Let's pause for a second. I don't think so. And I think we have a couple good reasons to think so. One, when he interprets dreams, he's very clear. Like only God can give, can give the meaning of these dreams, right? He's like, there's no divination. Don't bring me a special bowl with water in it. Nothing. I just... Look, tell me the dream and God will give the interpretation. But he's trying to like imitate a typical Egyptian ruler with his brothers, which is why he's like knows things about them. How does he know? He knows our ages, top to bottom. He just knows stuff. And so then he tells them, didn't you know that I could? He's just being intimidating. He's being fearful. Uh, that's what I think is going on here. Even when he talks about this cup to his servant, he doesn't say, get the cup I practice divination with. He goes, you know, my silver cup, put it in Benjamin's sack. He doesn't even call it that. But to the brothers, they call it the divination cup. So I think it's part of a trick. Verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants because they're convinced. Yeah, we're, we're busted. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you... Go in peace to your father. I just want Benjamin. I think this is a rescue operation. I think that's what this plan was. Um, Now, let's look at verse 30 and let's see what goes on next. Um, Genesis 44, 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, this is Judah speaking, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that boy is not, that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servants, uh, your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. So Jacob's going to die. He's not going to be able to handle losing the son. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, and this is where things change, please let your servant, Judah, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. 
Joseph is watching the brother who said, let's sell him into slavery, offer himself as a slave instead of Benjamin, his little brother. And this is, I think, the thing that shifts and changes for Joseph. I think this is when he goes, you're like, you really have changed. You are repentant. You're not just bowing to me. You're also changed. You've repented. And I think we can speak here of hope for Israel. Judah, the very one who could be demonized as being, oh, you, let's sell him as a slave. He's the one who comes and and is restored. He's the one who speaks up and shifts and changes what Joseph is going to do next. But then, then the next chapter, Genesis 45, verse 1, Joseph decides, now that you're repentant, I will reveal myself to you. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, none of the Egyptian hosts that he had with him. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. This is, this to me, the picture of this is so glorious because what I, what I see when I read this is I see Jesus saying to the Jewish people, see, it's me. It's me, the one you sold, the one you rejected. It's me. And I see the reunion happening there. and How glorious and beautiful of a thing it is. Um, Genesis 45.3, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. And what he asks him is really interesting. Is my father still alive? Didn't they tell him he was alive? But he, I mean, maybe he's still wondering, like, I don't know if I can really trust you. Now that you know I'm not the Egyptian guy, like, it's me. It's Joseph. Like, is, he, is dad okay? So he asked them, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. <laughs> like, it's a little much to take in, you know? So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. He's like, Reuben, remember that time you chipped my tooth? It's right here, look. Um, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And now he, it's, he's not interested in rubbing things in. He's interested in restoring. I think he saw the genuineness of them. He's convinced, and boom, the veil comes off, right? Now the veil's lifted. This is, I'm speaking 1 Corinthians language here. The veil's lifted, and then they see who he really is, and they're restored. Um, this is the payoff moment, right? God working good through evil. There's a whole sermon that I don't have time to teach. God working good through the evil and the plots of man, but how much more through Jesus? I mean, Joseph goes, and his actions save Gentiles and Jews alike, and and. And this is what Jesus does. He saves many alive. But even more, um, in Isaiah 49.6, it says of, of Christ, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's like, Jesus, you're going to be saving everybody. You're going to have a salvation that goes out to all the world. And so we see in this zoomed out look, it's so much like Jesus. I don't know how you could, how you could argue with this being a type of Christ. And may I say, Genesis 45, this summary is Joseph's summary. You sold me, but God intended it to save many people alive. I mean, this could be Jesus saying these words. 
Then he, of course, tells them of the continued famine. It's only two years out of seven. <clears throat> and then in verse 12, And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck. Not in a bad way, right? This is like a big old hug. Like he gives him a big hug, falls upon his neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him because now they get it. Joseph, you're alive. You're alive. So then what happens next to kind of zoom out from the story a little bit for the sake of time? Because it's a lot of chapters, right? Um, On account of Joseph... The Israelites, in this case the tribes, about 70 plus people, they come into the land of Egypt and they're given the best of the land and they're treated incredibly well because of Joseph. Because of Joseph. And this to me is also a picture of the future of Israel. As I see things, and as I think pretty much everybody here does in our group, right? We believe there's an actual millennium coming where, where Israel is sort of the center of the nations of the world. And the fruit and the blessings upon Israel are on behalf of Jesus Christ coming upon them. And we see the same thing happen with Joseph. Um, the relationship between Pharaoh and, and Jacob is a really interesting story there. And just neat stuff in this. Um, then the story sort of shifts back to Jacob, back to Israel. And his, his story. He goes into Egypt. He dies. He is mourned. And then let's jump ahead to Genesis 50. Because that's really where we come back to where it's focused on Joseph again. Now, you might be like, well, but Egypt mistreated them. That, that, that whole stuff of slavery happened generations later, right? A pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, and that's when things changed. At first, it was a, a really good relationship. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So we have ultimately a real repentance, a real restoration of real relationship happening, happening after all that stuff. And it was God's plan all along, all along. Um, finally, in Genesis 50, verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear as he dies. They have to promise saying, God will surely visit you and carry you carry up, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So then there's a commitment. You're going you're gonna to take my bones with you when you go into the land where God is going to be taking you. So he dies in hope. He dies with this sort of expectant hope that there's something in the future coming that's greater. Hebrews 11.22 talks about this, actually. So let's bring a couple of New Testament passages in in closing. Hebrews 11.22, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Um, in a sense, this might be like a, um, somehow speaking of like hope for hope after death, sort of a sense. You know, he dies, his bones, he's like, take my bones with you. Later on in Jewish customs, uh, the bones being kept and treated certain ways was all in anticipation of the resurrection. 
And so there could be somehow intimations of the resurrection there. Um, <clears throat> then finally, uh, turn to Acts chapter 7, and let's read one more little passage where Stephen, when he's being martyred in the New Testament, he refers to Joseph as he's giving a list of sort of building a case for Jesus and for how they reject Jesus and then they ought to receive Jesus. It, it's interesting, Acts 7. That was homework one of those days. Remember that homework you forgot about? That was Acts 7. So um, while you're on your way there, Acts 7, uh, verse 9, we'll start there. Um, is there typology in every single element of Joseph's story? I personally don't see it in every single element. Um, are there in many? Absolutely. Are some of them more clear than others? Some of these connections? Yep. Others are maybe less clear. And, um, and I think we can conclude it's definitely a type, though. There's, there's too much for it not to be. In Acts 7, verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, in the context, context of Acts 7, Stephen is he's doing typological preaching in Acts 7. He's preaching based on sort of, remember when you didn't, the Israelites didn't accept Moses the first time and the second time they did and they rejected Joseph the first time and the second time they received him? This is, this is what he's doing. Then he kind of recounts the story. Uh, now there came a famine through all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham, Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And then he kind of, after, this is one of the stories he brings up. He brings up other stories. And then at the end of Acts 7, he brings the application. And here's Stephen's application. Verse 51, it's not very nice, but it's there. <laughs> he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So he looks at the rejection of these key figures of the Old Testament by the Jewish people, how they rejected those key figures, as a prefigurement of how they would reject Jesus. So this typological significance is embedded uh, in not only the Old Testament, but in even the New Testament interpretation of the Old. Boy, I feel like that was a big mouthful of stuff. I hope it made sense. Um, so there's, there's Joseph, the story of Joseph, and we'll continue our studies of uh, Jesus in the Old Testament um, for at least 35 more weeks, or, or three, I don't know kind of praying and thinking about things, so we'll see. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus in the Old Testament and to get to do this series and to discover these truths. We pray this, Lord, that um, the perseverance we see in the life of Joseph and ultimately even more so in the life of Jesus, the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy, um, that we could, we could give that to others and we could share it with others so that people could look at us and see a representation of Christ and of his love, and of his kindness and faithfulness. We just thank you for the truth of your holy word and for the incredible tapestry of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>